Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Mobile Line, as written and performed by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, John Sebastian. Growing up in Greenwich Village, New York, Sebastian cut his teeth on American roots music. He formed the Love and Spoonful in the mid-1960s, blending folk, blues, country, rock, and pop to create a string of seven consecutive top ten hits, including Do You Believe in Magic? You Didn't Have to Be So Nice? Daydream? Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind? Summer in the City? Rain on the Roof? And Nashville Cats? Each of them was written or co-written by Sebastian, and two of his compositions, Summer in the City and Do You Believe in Magic, are listed in Rolling Stone magazine's ranking of the 500 greatest songs of all time. In 1976, he recorded a number one solo hit with Welcome Back, the theme song to the popular TV show Welcome Back, Cotter, and he has continued to create engaging, roots-oriented sounds with his celebrated J-Band. The Love and Spoonful was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, and Sebastian became a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2008. His songs have been recorded by Johnny Cash, Joe Cocker, B.B. King, Sarah Vaughn, Quincy Jones, John Mellencamp, Dolly Parton, Tom Petty, Elvis Costello, The Everly Brothers, Isaac Hayes, Flatten Scruggs, Art Garfunkel, The Bee Gees, The Mamas and the Papas, Bell and Sebastian, Rumor, and many others. You know, of the John Sebastian songs that we're mentioning here, I mean, obviously, Daydream, Do You Believe in Magic, I think Summer in the City is such a cool-sounding song. But with the era that I grew up in, the, the song that I had the most familiarity with was the Welcome Back Cotter theme, and oh, I love yeah. that song. Yeah, totally. It's just a, that's a sweet-sounding melody on that thing. Yeah, you know, I think the, the thing that's interesting to me about John Sebastian is you go back and you look at what he was doing melodically, even in the mid-'60s, even with a song like... Uh, Summer in the City, um, the way that that song moves, the way the melody changes, yeah. it's pretty sophisticated for like a mid-60s rock and roll band. Oh, totally. And I guess when you have that kind of melodic ability, um, that's how you end up with two songs on the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, and I think of a guy like John Sebastian, he, he's got this sort of accolades that would totally afford him the right to just be a jackass. Right. <laughs> you know, there's there's certain people, they've they've got enough money, they, they've got enough accomplishments that you're not going to be that surprised if they're just kind of a jerk. Sure. Uh, but man, talk about just a genuinely nice guy. Yeah, he was down to earth. I mean, he, we didn't have to like pull anything out of him. He just seemed like he was enjoying having this conversation. Yeah, in fact, actually for our listeners, the first uh, time that we were scheduled to talk with John, he forgot about it. And right. when we called, uh, he, he wasn't home. And uh, uh, and he called later that day and was so apologetic yeah. and, and so nice. And, you know, I think this guy doesn't need to be interviewed by us. You know, he's he's done a gazillion interviews in his right. life. And, you know, I could imagine a scenario where some artists or writers might come home and hear that message and go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Whatever. Yeah, forget uh, those guys. Yeah. But he, he called immediately and was so apologetic and when can we reschedule and uh, and just like he felt like he was your, your friend like the, the moment you, you speak to him. It, it may have been because we left all of our questions on his voicemail. That, that may have been why, <laughs> why he felt the need to call us back. Yeah, he might have called the authorities. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's get into it. Let's hear from John Sebastian. That's your sign, honey, this bullfrog. 
frogs on your mind. John, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you very much. Well, you grew up in, in New York City, in Greenwich Village, with a father who was a renowned classical harmonica player and a mother who I understand was a, a writer and wrote um, radio dramas. Uh, talk a little bit about that environment and what influence your parents had on your creative development. It was pretty rich. Uh, there were musicians coming in and out of that uh, little apartment on Bank Street, uh, uh, folk singers of that era, right. uh, and, and my mother was, in the meantime, uh, writing very often at night and very often uh, uh, collaborating with any number of really funny Jewish punchline guys <laughs> right. that she would work with routinely, and uh, so it was... You know, it was a really rich atmosphere, yeah. and, and very often it was funny around the house. <laughs> yeah, and maybe yeah. as a result, I had less to actually rebel against huh. at a time <laughs> when everybody else had an axe to grind. Right, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Now, you, you talk about your parents having musicians and writers in the house. Were there uh, some, some folks who were in and out of there that, that we would be familiar with? Probably uh, Burl Ives, uh, oh, yeah. of course, was uh, kind of more consistently around. Yeah. But there was this two-week period where he said, he, he conned my dad. He said, look, you got to let this guy stay at your house. He's going to be the next great American songwriter. Uh, so my memory of Woody Guthrie oh. is oh, wow. that I'm going to bed and... Uh, I hear somebody playing guitar in the next room. Wow. Well, and so by the time you were a young teenager, you were living across from Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. And tell us a little bit about the music scene that was happening there in the late 50s and very early 60s. Uh, I would hear the bongos start on Sunday and go down to the park and it was probably a few years before I got the nerve up to actually bring a guitar along with me right but uh it was this wonderful moment where you could hear everything from uh guys who were imitating old-time music to kind of uh got the matching shirt guys mm. that were right. listening to the kingston trio and sure. the commercial folk music effect uh, was starting to to be there and uh then they'd be doo-wop guys. And I remember hearing this doo-wop group at one point, and the lead singer in this doo-wop group just flips my head around. And I'm listening to this guy saying, this is one of the coolest voices I've ever heard. And by a half a year later, I was traveling these basket houses and Richie Havens had by that time switched <laughs> from being a doo-wop guy that came down from, from Brooklyn and right. sang on the weekends 
to a guy who just said, no, no, I'm staying now. <laughs> wow. Fred right. Neal likes me, and I'm staying. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we talked about your father being a classical musician, but, but I understand that he encouraged your interest in folk music, you know, particularly the blues. And I'd love to know about some of those influences how the, and how they were shaping you as a young musician. The real pivotal moment uh, was when I accompanied him to a Sunday afternoon talk show called Robert Herridge Presents, Hmm. and it was before public television, but it was definitely that kind of an atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. And there was a uh, a Welsh poet who did uh, some Shakespeare. There was an unknown uh, young folk singer from Cambridge, 16, 17 years old. That's Joan Baez. Wow. <laughs> and Lightning Hopkins. Yeah. Who, you know, it took something to make Joni go, you know, uh, kind of not be the focus of the <laughs> afternoon. Right? Yeah. But I'll tell you, Lightning Hopkins was astonishing. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you you eventually joined the Even Dozen Jug Band as a harmonica player, and, and you appeared um, billed as John Benson on the one album that, uh, that that group released for Elektra Records in early 1964. And the Even Dozen Jug Band is probably most significant for the talent that it spawned. Uh, Steve Katz, of course, was in the group who would go on to, to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, David Grisman was there, who's a renowned mandolinist, best known for so many folks for his work with Jerry Garcia. Uh, Maria Moldor was in the band, who later had a big hit with Midnight at the Oasis in the mid-70s. Um, but I, I want to ask you about the producer of the album, Paul Rothschild, who went on to work with The Doors and Janis Joplin and many others. It seems to me that he was an important link in your uh, development as a professional musician early on. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that he played in your career starting out. Well, very perceptive. I don't know how you know about this, but I'll certainly (laughs) tell you that uh, uh, my friendship with Paul did begin uh, around the Even Dozen Jug Band and our mutual interest in how music was starting to flip and uh, pot and um, Greenwich Village yeah. because he had been a producer in Cambridge uh, and had just finally made the switch over uh, from a real folky label called Vanguard to uh, a also folky but a little more open-minded called the electorate right and for the next year maybe two every night i would go to electro records uh and paul rothschild and i became kind of just like street brothers right. where we would meet every night you know around the corner of bleaker and mcdougall we'd make passes at all the coffee houses there were two purposes. I would be playing with Timmy Harden or Freddie Neal or eventually uh, uh, John Hurt. And he was trying to hear all the people that were playing the basket houses right, to yeah. catch them as they were coming up. Yeah. 
Well, and I understand that it was in that that same era that uh, you met Cass Elliot, uh, with whom you wound up in a band called the Mugwumps, and that group ultimately splintered with with Cass and Denny Doherty going on to the Mamas and the Papas, and you and guitarist Zolyanovsky going on to to form the Love and Spoonful. But uh, there's this Mamas and Papas hit song Creek Alley, which chronicled that history, and of course includes that line in a coffee house Sebastian sat after every number they'd pass the hat. talk about the the basket houses and the people you know playing for a live audience playing their songs and I'm curious from your perspective um, how being a troubadour in the folk clubs of Greenwich Village and being able to kind of get that instant audience feedback or maybe non-feedback how that shaped your sense uh, as a songwriter for what makes a good song that's absolutely pivotal that's so important yeah. to be able to get an audience reaction and it's a it's a it's a great it's a great privilege uh, uh i had already kind of understood that from watching my father do his performances that that uh, i mean he relished it and i began to uh to uh, relish it in the same way yeah but let's see let's go back now uh to the first part of the question I got a call from Cass saying, listen, you've got to come down to D.C. because all of a sudden we've got hotel rooms. You can stay with us, and please bring us a kilo. <laughs> so I uh, brought the kilo down to Washington, and they said, oh, stay, stay. <laughs> and so I ended up playing harmonica sort of as a second accompanist right. in the band. But it was a kind of a foregone conclusion that this was... Uh, it was too manufactured by management, if right. you will. Yeah. I lasted two weeks uh, with oh, uh, wow. the Mugwumps before <laughs> their manager, uh, you know, Mr. Know-It, uh, <laughs> explained to me that, that I was getting in the way uh, <laughs> because I wasn't following the arrangements and I was drawing Zal away from the arrangements to uh. do what I was doing. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, you know, I, I didn't, I, I, I sat and listened and didn't say anything like, you know, that's, musicians do that. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's why this but, is fun. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, anyway... As the Mugwumps uh, kind of came apart, Zal and I had by that time begun to play together in the afternoons and in hotels and so on. Yeah. And realizing that we had some communality of of style or or, or a lot of the same ideas about combining. Uh, blues and country music and 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 you know not being quite so strict about our sources right right the same way that the beatles were doing yeah right. uh, sure yeah well and of course by early 1965 you and and zoll were 
were playing in the Love and Spoonful with bassist Steve Boone and drummer Joe Butler when you made your first recordings for uh, Electra Records, which makes sense given your um, relationship with Paul Rothschild. Uh, and and of, from those early sessions came your original song, Good Time Music. With that good Jack Holtzman came to us and said, I want to cut four tunes of you guys. Right. And we're all ready to go, oh, well, we're a rock and roll band, and we're not going to be on a folk label. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, uh, uh, and he says, but I'm not going to put it out. Huh. Now he has our attention. Interesting. He says, I'm going to hold it. I'm going to hold it for about a year. Because I figure in a year, you guys will be famous. <laughs> and then I'm going to put it out. Wow. <laughs> now, to us, the idea that somebody thought we were going to be famous was already such a great thing. Right. And the other part of the deal, which was really pivotal, was he said, and for all of this, I will buy you guys big amplifiers. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did you guys come up with the name Love and Spoonful? Well, uh, I have to give credit to Fritz Richmond. Uh, we were all pals, and he came into town and said, whoa, what are you guys doing? You know, well, it's late. I said, well, we're, we're starting a band, and, and, you know, it's this starting to sound kind of good right. and he said well what are you going to call it and I we said we don't know we don't have a name he says well what is it what does it sound like and I said well ideally we want to sound like Chuck Berry by way of Mississippi John Hurt hmm. <laughs> and he said well why don't you call it the Love and Spoonful huh? just flat out like that <laughs> yeah and that was that that line came out of his song Coffee Blues, right? That's correct. Mississippi John Hurt. You guys um wound up signing with Kama Sutra Records and had a big top 10 hit with your very first single Do You Believe in Magic, which was released in the summer of 
in the real shadows is a beautiful young girl dancing our way. Uh, <laughs> right. And we see it, and Zali and I both looked at each other, knowing that, yes, here comes, the, this is our audience. Somebody and gets it. Yeah. <laughs> let's get these girls from Queens, where are they? <laughs> right, right. And uh, Do You Believe in Magic was written, inspired by mm. that moment. And you know, uh, really, within a week or so after that little thunderclap, we really suddenly had a flip of the audience. Hmm. The second Spoonful single was You Didn't Have to Be So Nice, which was uh, another top ten hit and one that you wrote with bassist Steve Boone. Wilson has said that those layered harmonies influenced him uh, in writing the Beach Boys classic "God Only Knows," and once a song. Get the fuck out of here! <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Me. I never, I really, I never heard anybody say that. Really? But, I mean, yeah. I know Brian. Yeah, but yeah. He never said that to me. Yeah, I read an interview with him where he he said that the that the sound of those harmonies influenced uh, him on on "God Only Knows." And how um, funny the spoonful, the world's worst vocal band. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, we, uh, thank God we had Joe Butler, because <laughs> he could sing the background parts convincingly. But, well, I mean, you know, Zal had a great voice, but it was more like a lead singer, kind of a gruff voice, a very cool voice, actually. Well, and what, what role does that kind of vocal arranging play into your songwriting process? Uh, it's just a bonus. I mean, <laughs> uh, very often it was never anything that I had thought of. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the rounds at the end of uh, Do You Believe in Magic uh, were kind of a thing that happened in the studio. Mm. Wow. Uh, Paul McCartney has said that your third single, the number two hit Daydream, influenced his song Good Day Sunshine. That I have heard because okay. he's been very... <laughs> outspoken and gracious about that yeah what a day for a daydream custom made for a daydreaming boy now i'm lost in a daydream dreaming about my bundle of joy well, the, Daydream is one of those timeless songs. It's been recorded by Bobby Darin, Ricky Nelson, Chet Atkins, Vince Gill, Art Garfunkel, Doris Day, I mean, many others. Do you have a... Art Garfunkel did an amazing version on Well, that's what record. I was just going to ask you, if you had a favorite version other than your own. That's it. That's the one. That's it. Art Garfunkel, far and away. Mm. Yeah. What is it about his version that you like so much? Uh, it's so accurate. <laughs> I mean, a, a guy who writes a melody loves it when a song, when a, song, a singer follows that melody like it was the Bible. <laughs> right. And, you know, that's, that is to, to uh, his credit. Yeah. Uh, and it was also was a great session. My mm. God, we had Steve Gadd on drums oh, and, wow. and Warren Bernhardt on piano. Man. And, oh, man, it was a <laughs> really 
great. Well, and I've, I've heard you say that that song was an attempt to sound like the Supremes, and I understand the Spoonful has shared a bus on tour through the South with the Supremes. I'd love to know about that experience. Well, we had a, we had a great summer. I mean, it was kind of a, uh, you know, just sit here and learn, little guys. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know? right. That's what we were doing. We just shut up and learn. Right. Here. Uh, because it was the whole... Uh, um, Motown Orchestra in mm. the bus as well, wow. and all of these guys had, you know, they had, they, this was nothing new to any of these guys, yeah. and yeah. so they all knew the ropes, and they know, they know when they're going to eat dinner uh, <laughs> after the show, and when nobody's going to get any dinner, <laughs> all, they, they know it night by night, right. and so it was uh, really instructive to uh, to hear uh, these guys uh, talk about. Oh man, next next week we're going to be in Atlanta. You know we're going to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> they all knew, you know, wherever Mars was. Right, that's know, it was it was in one place that uh, you had to know about. Right, you know? right. So you got to like go on the on the road with uh, with mentors right away to tell you what to do in each town and, and where to I eat. really it was it was remarkable. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. and 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 the, the the Supremes were just so great that mm. that entire summer they were fantastic. But we were hearing all these tunes like "Baby Love," "Where Did Our Love Go," and 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 going. We got to do that. We yeah. got to do that straight eight thing. Right. Yeah. You can hear that uh, that influence on Daydream. It's it's it works so well. Um, well, in mid nineteen sixty six, you guys followed up Daydream with another uh, number two hit single on the Billboard chart. Did you ever have to make up your mind? And I'm wondering if the songs that you were writing in that era were autobiographical. In other words, were you actually trying to make up your mind, or were these sort of just kind of stories you were creating? No, the uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't uh, living them as I was uh, uh, writing the songs. I very often was using raw material that had happened already several mm. years ago. Oh, I see. Uh, you know, in the case of did you ever have to make up your mind? I'm happy to say I'm still very good friends with the two sisters that uh, I was going to summer camp with. That that. Uh, uh, the, the song kind of came out of. It wasn't quite as clear-cut as I made it. But, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So you uh, you had your eye on the, these two sisters and were, were wondering which one to focus in on, huh? <laughs> in, yeah, in my, in my idiocy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, wh- why pick one anyway? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you can imagine a lot of things when you're a 15-year-old idiot. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, well, you know, during that initial streak of, of singles with the Love and Spoonful, there was uh, one that I believe was only released in Canada and, and not the U.S. And I'm talking about uh, Jug Band Music, which went to number two on the Canadian pop chart. Um, and around that same time, two bands, the, the Critters and the Hondells, appeared on the charts with covers of your song Younger Girl, which was an album cut from the Spoonful's first LP. 
And that song is somewhat of a reworking of Prison Wall Blues, a 1930 recording by Gus Cannon's Jug Stompers, which was one of the more important Memphis jug bands. And so I, I say all that um, just in light of, you know, we've already mentioned that you were in the even dozen jug band and, and these jug band influences keep sort of popping up. But for those who might not be familiar, talk about what exactly jug band music is and what about it appealed to you that, that shaped you as a songwriter. Uh, it, I, I, sometimes it's oversimplifying to say, well, it's a, a jug or a, right. or a wash tub or a washboard, because uh, there were some bands like the Mississippi Sheiks that were jazz players. These guys read. Right. Oh. <laughs> there wasn't any, uh, you know, uh, uh, any hokum. Uh, these arrangements, uh, uh, some of these tunes were were just remarkably mm, right, right. complex. Yeah. Uh, and others were just these simple uh, three-chord blues songs, but they did gain a certain uh, bounce when you got somebody great like Noah Lewis playing harmonica. Mm, and yeah. Of course, Gus Cannon's uh, six-string banjo and five-string banjo stuff. And Right, right. You know, I guess one of the things that that might not be totally obvious to non-songwriters is that those songs very often had uh, a a very rough language for the 60s when we were playing them. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it might be even rougher now in Hmm. in some ways. But... um, so I, a lot of the beginnings of those songwriting processes happened uh, changing lyrics to those songs. <laughs> Interesting. Because you go, well, we can't say that. <laughs> right, right. You have to adapt them. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, moving on in the history of The Spoonful, you know, one of your biggest successes came when you scored a massive number one hit in the summer of 1966. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty. Unlike the majority of your hit songs, which were written solo, this one was written with bassist Steve Boone and your brother Mark. Yes, in fact, my brother Mark was the uh, the, the original kernel of the idea. It really came huh. from Mark. Huh. Well, uh, tell us how you all kind of came together on creating that song, and, and what about it you think resonated so strongly with radio audiences? Well, you can't plan that kind of thing. Hmm. It just happens. Yeah. Uh uh, in in this, the way this song happened, uh, my brother had this uh, verse and chorus uh, called "Summer in the City," and uh, you know it's going to get hot, and the shadows of the buildings will be the only shady spot. But at night, it's a different world. Mm-hmm. I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute! What? what tell me, show me that part again, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, because it it is chordally interesting, yeah. and. Uh, I said, you know, let let me take the verse 
and do a little different thing so that when we come to this chorus that it will really open up because it's a kind of a subdominant and then the subdominant of that and, mm. uh, and, and it has a certain opening up effect. Yeah. And so uh, there we were with a verse and a chorus and there was this fragment that Steve Boone had been playing on a piano I mean, for months as we were recording various albums. And uh, it, it got to where we were going, no, Stephen, we can't <laughs> think of anything for that. We must right. alone with that fragment. Yeah. It doesn't connect with anything. <laughs> All of a sudden, we get to the, you know, the second time around, Summer in the City, and we realize, oh, no. <laughs> the thing that Stephen wrote is perfect. Right, right, right. we got to use it. Uh, so that's when we added, uh, after, I mean, after r- recording it, we, mm, wow. uh, I think somebody, I think, I think actually I mentioned that it was kind of like American in Paris, huh. in that there was this section that reminded me of traffic. And Zal, who will always take anything to the wall, goes, let's get traffic. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, wow. uh, so we hire this great old Jewish sound man, radio sound man, who shows up with 78s, right. boxes of them. Wow. And a, and a, and a record player. Right. And he starts auditioning. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're listening to uh, uh, 48th Street at 5 o'clock at night. Wow. <laughs> and, and actually, that was the winner. We, oh. we'd, we'd heard about eight different ones, and then we heard 48th Street. And we said, Jeez. oh, no, That's it's got to be that, because Manny's is on 48th Street, the famous music store that we all yeah. uh, inhabited. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, yeah, Summer in the City appeared on the band's third studio album, Hums of the Love and Spoonful, and that record in particular explores so many influences from the, the harp in the top 10 single, Rain on the Roof, uh, to the country sound of Darlin' Companion, which Johnny Cash later covered on his uh, Live at San Quentin LP. And it seems to me like the Spoonful almost intentionally tried to avoid a defining sound and instead opted to explore multiple genres. And so if it wasn't a specific sound that uh, held the spoonful together, what was that glue? What was that identity that, that made the spoonful the spoonful? I think it was the diversity idea that here we had been in this environment growing up where a given single would foster three other singles that sounded like the first one. Right, yeah. And that groups would get a tighter and tighter identity as they went on. And so I think seeing that as a, as a real problem, uh, and also having our own particular influences, I mean, you know, Zal was as influenced by Elmore James yeah. as uh, he was by uh, Floyd Kramer. Hmm, interesting. And, and it would all be in the same song. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, speaking of, of Floyd Kramer, uh, of course, a very famous Nashville studio musician, there's another major hit on the Hums of the Love and Spoonful album, which is Nashville Cats. Nashville Cats, play 
cleanest country water. Folks kind of still regarded uh, Nashville as kind of this square country music town at the time. And here you guys are, this rock band kind of celebrating it and and doing it with a a steel guitar, no less. Uh, What what inspired you guys to to do that? Well, uh, we had actually played Nashville a few months before I wrote that song. Uh, And what happened was Val and I finished our gig and we go to this Holiday Inn bar. I think it was, you know, the beer bar below the hotel we were staying at. Right. And uh, and, uh, this guy walks in and starts uh, tuning up and then he starts playing and he is crazy good. Right. It starts as a kind of a Chet Atkinsy thing, and then it migrates into this kind of hillbilly jazz, and uh, uh, it, it, uh, it just it was really astonishing. Yeah. And so, at a certain point, Zali and I get up and go up to our our uh, hotel room. I say singular because we were all still sharing hotel rooms. (laughs) Right. And we did have this conversation. And this is not unusual for Spoonful Singles, by the way, that they often came out of... uh, Zalyanovsky would never write songs, but the conversations I would have with him Mm. would kind of very often force songs out of me yeah yeah well in bluegrass legends flat and scruggs recorded their own version of of nashville cats which hit the country charts and as a writer who was heavily steeped in american roots music what did it mean to you to to hear those guys singing your song that was incredible that was incredible Mm. yeah i yeah i uh things uh, uh, like that happening are, are some of the real, the real gravy of songwriting. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. When somebody like Johnny and June do your tune, yeah, right, right. You, hey, I'm onto something. <laughs> yeah, I must be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that same year, 1967, was a really pivotal year for the band in that Zal and Steve were arrested in San Francisco, and it led to a series of events that ultimately resulted in Zal's departure from the group. What happened there? Zal and Steve, uh, are, you know, I, 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 would, I would direct you to Steve Boone because uh, I, was not, I was not even in the same town <laughs> when it happened. Right. But the results were, were dire, mm. and the guys, uh, you know, tried to get themselves out of trouble and just ended up getting themselves into more trouble and uh, basically uh, ruined their chances of playing in California, which ruined our chances of playing those first pivotal California rock and roll shows that were going to kind of describe who the upper crust really was. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it was 
tremendously sad, uh, right. and it uh, ruined uh, Zal for show business. He uh. could never feel the same again. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he, he did a 24-hour pivot from being the coolest guy, you know, to being, oh, he's a fink now. Yeah, right. yeah, very unfortunate. Um. Well, Jerry Yester, who had played piano on Do You Believe in Magic and had been a, a member of the New Christie Minstrels and the Modern Folk Quartet, came into the Spoonful as the new guitarist. And and you guys quickly went to work on your fourth album, Everything Playing, which included the singles uh, Six O'Clock, She's Still a Mystery, and, and Money, um, which used a typewriter as a percussion instrument. I feel sick to give it to Hank, because Hank owns a bank and he can make it grow Now ain't those amazing folks that feel is lucky to know I think that's so fascinating. You you switch producers for that record and and I understand that that the album was one of the actually one of the first to be recorded on a 16 track machine. Um, and I'm wondering if the, the possibilities that kind of opened up with new technology in that area, in that era and, and a willingness to experiment, if, if all those new ideas and new technologies actually influenced your approach to the process of writing songs. I'd say to the process of recording songs, mm, sure. It, it made a tremendous difference. Uh, all of that, uh, uh, all of that tracking made uh, this uh, much bigger uh, thing possible, right. and that's where the title comes from. Because yeah. by the time we were done, we we did have everything playing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you left the Love and Spoonful in 1968 to pursue a solo career. Um, you were the primary songwriter and, and really the, the leader of the group. Um, so why did you feel like you needed to, to go solo when you were already, at least from the outside looking in, very much the, the driving force of the band? Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, being able to write for The Spoonful, but there was one box that hadn't been checked yet. Right. Yeah. And that was, what if you made an album and you weren't thinking about the same four guys playing sure. it? Yeah. Sure. What would you write if you could have anybody playing in the background? Right. Sure. Yeah. And that was a thought that really came to me and Paul Rothschild mm-hmm. as a kind of a reaction to our, our, you know, the Spoonfuls process, which had, I mean, except for the albums where we were using orchestras, obviously, but uh, except for that, we, we were really, really tight on having it really be us, mm-hmm. you know, right. those, those albums. Yeah, yeah. Well, y- your first big exposure as a solo artist uh, came with your appearance at the Woodstock Festival in 1969. I can show you the prettiest mountain that you've ever seen. You better run to your closet and fish out your blue suede shoes. I'll paint rainbows all over your Well, 
I was <clears throat> told that this Woodstock Festival was going to be really special. Uh, so I did eventually go to a an airport near Albany and try to get on a plane to try to get closer. Mm. And uh, here's what happened. I'm looking out on the tarmac, kind of hopelessly going, God, are any planes coming in? And I see a helicopter that is a guy packing stuff into the helicopter, obviously instruments. And I look closer, and it is an ex-roadie of the Love and Spoon what? <laughs> And I, I start to gesticulate <laughs> until the guy turns around, and he sees that it's me, and he gesticulates towards the staircase right. out onto the tarmac. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do that these days. He goes, you're trying to get to Woodstock. I said, yeah. He says, John, you're, you're never going to be able to do it. There's, there's like, they're, they're closing the, the throughway. Wow. You're not going to be able to do it. So uh, get in this plane. <laughs> I realized. And, wow. Uh, so my introduction to Woodstock is dead on. Like the movie wow. the intro, right? The aerial where view. you fly over this immense area, and there's no, no visible grass or That's anything. Amazing. It's all sleeping bags and <laughs> right. Volkswagen buses and campers and on and on. Yeah. So uh, I land, uh, and I pretty much head for the backstage because. The music business is so much smaller at this point. I know everybody right, backstage. Right, sure. And there's no security. <laughs> Nobody's invented that yet. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I, I'm tooling around backstage. And then on Saturday, I was back up on stage just, you know, because now it's a hang. And right. we're watching this whole thing emerge and the whole thing of the the gates going down and so on and uh, I I hear Michael Lang say we gotta get somebody to hold them with an acoustic while we sweep the stage because yes. of the electricity yeah. we're gonna get in trouble here mm. we're gonna hurt somebody right because right. it started raining at that point and I'm I'm standing between the with between him uh, between Michael Lang and Chipmunk and I'm nodding Right, we're all three of us w looking out at the crowd. Right, and then I look and I realize they're not looking at the crowd; they're looking at me. <laughs> and I, I go, guys, I don't even have a guitar. And Michael says, "Well, you have a few minutes to get one." <laughs> right, and that was sort of the attitude. We really needed, uh, just needed warm bodies to keep people busy there wow. yeah so what happened was i chased around the backstage and found timmy harden and borrowed his guitar and so i mean i played that i played that with n no familiar instrument wow <laughs> uh, a little intimidating to step up to the mic and see that size crowd and you yeah, don't even have your own amazing. guitar <laughs> quite an amazing thing yeah amazing well, your first solo album came out in, in 1970, but uh, was significantly delayed due to legal wrangling between MGM Records and the Reprise label, which both claimed the, the right to release that record. And I'm sure anybody who's 
been around the music business for a long time can attest to, to those kind of frustrations. But um, there are there are some really interesting things on that first solo album. And I'm thinking um, of a song like The Room Nobody Lives In. And it's quite different from what you were doing with The Love and Spoonful. Uh, did you think of that album as a more introspective, uh, personal statement than your earlier work with the band? Yeah, I think probably it had to be that way because I was no longer working uh, with, I mean, several very good influences, I might add. Uh, Zal Yanofsky, Eric Jacobson, uh, and uh, so I think it did open up things a little bit more. Also, uh, uh, Paul Rothschild's uh, interest in pushing the boundaries and when I'd come up with a tune like She's a Lady, he'd say, well, yeah, it does sound kind of renaissance. Let's get some, <laughs> you know, let's get some viola da gambas right. in here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you made a couple more albums for reprise in the early 1970s, um, The Four of Us and Tarzana Kid. Um, and neither spawned a, a big hit single, but were great albums. And Tarzana Kid uh, included Stories We Could Tell, which had already at that point been recorded by the Everly Brothers and, and was later cut by Jimmy Buffett, B.J. Thomas. Um, Tom Petty recorded it uh, on his Pack Up the Plantation live album. And oh, the stories we could tell and that's one of your songs that maybe it wasn't a, a big hit, but it has obviously become a perennial favorite of a lot of people. Um, tell us about that song and, and why you think other artists, uh, particularly other well-respected songwriters, have, have gravitated to it. Well, I guess that it's a fairly logical narrative for uh, uh, somebody whose job is playing music mm, right. and traveling is inherent in that, most of it for most people. Um, I, I couldn't really tell you other than uh, the fact that, for example, I, I went to Nashville and I went to the Hall of Fame, and I saw um, I saw Hank Williams' guitar, mm -hmm. and I remember thinking about, gee, man, someday I wonder if Freddie Neal's guitar will be in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of the underappreciated uh, genius guys that I yeah. I was working with during that era. Right. Well, after somewhat kind of a dry spell in terms of chart activity. During the first part of the 1970s, you hit the number one spot in 1976 with with Welcome Back, which was, of course, the theme song for the TV show Welcome Back, Cotter. Welcome back to that same old place that you laughed about. Well, the names have all changed since you hung around, but those dreams have remained and they've turned around. Who'd have thought they'd lead Was that song written specifically for the show, or was that something you already had composed? 
No, that was written very specifically for that show. And uh, it was called Cotter, I believe, at that point. And then I brought the song in, and they said, oh, you know, uh, we've had a little time to think about it, and we're going to change the name of the show to Welcome Back, Cotter. Wow, (laughs) nice. It was written very fast and recorded faster. <laughs> and sometimes that's the best the best way. Right, don't overthink it. Well, and so your fourth solo record was called Welcome Back, and even though you were coming off that huge hit single, you didn't make another album after that for 17 years. Why the long break? Well, I tell you, one thing is that uh, I didn't have that many good ideas. <laughs> yeah, <that's interesting>. uh, <laughs> and <laughs> Uh, you know, there's there's more to life. <laughs> you kind of yeah, between uh, you know, there's a parenting involved uh, somewhere along the line. Unless you're going to have your kids hate you, <laughs> uh, right. and uh, so that that certainly was a, a, a focus for me. Uh, but also, I got going in a genre that is wildly unpopular in terms of. Uh, the charts. Mm. I'm back to jug band music again. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, by the by the 1990s, you, you did start releasing records again. Uh, first with the 1993 album Tar Beach, and then with the the J Band that you mentioned, um, which put out I Want My Roots in 1996, featuring several original songs, including one of my personal favorites, Ain't Nowhere to Hobo Anymore. Um, oh, cool! What a great, yeah. great tune, and and you know, and of course, you then followed that up with with chasing Gus's ghost in 1999, a reference to Jug Band legend Gus Cannon, who we mentioned. And this this Jug Band theme runs throughout your entire career, and and I'm wondering, you know, hit singles aside, um, economics aside, uh, do you have a preference between the Love and Spoonful or the J Band in terms of just your personal satisfaction and creative expression? Each one to its time, mm-hmm. I'd say. Yeah. This spoonful was so delicious uh, for those four core years where we were as creative as we were. That was wonderful. And uh, uh, it took several years for me to begin to generate another group of friends to play steadily with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and it was a very tough a tough program for a few years because people did expect the Love and Spoonful catalog. Right. right. And uh, I, I was uh, on a kind of another trip. Sure, sure. Yeah, on to something else. Well, you know, it's it's kind of a long journey from uh, jug band music to hip-hop, although there arguably might be a traceable thread there. But uh, in, in 2004, Maze had a top 40 pop hit and a, a top 20 R&B hit with Welcome Back, which obviously heavily sampled your song. And a lot of writers from your generation have found new revenue streams from their work thanks to younger artists sampling their material. Um, how do you feel about your own music being reimagined in that way? Well, it's according to how well it's done. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I had uh, so many, there were a lot of samples of that tune yeah. uh, during that era you're talking about. It, it really was a, an interesting experience, especially uh, on Mace's version where, where it was a different thought. Yeah. Where he was saying, welcome me back. I've been a, you know, I've been a gangbanger and a bad dude and uh, I'm going to 
be responsible now and yeah. look after my kids. Welcome me back. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. yeah. And I thought, wow, that's turning, that's taking a song and turning it on the on its ear. Sure. That's Pete Seeger. That's yeah. that's the, you know. Yeah, interesting. The folk tradition, the best of it. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and along with those those uh, moments of sampling, another important source of income for songwriters is when your music is used in commercials, films, television shows, that kind of thing. And you've been very fortunate to have gotten some some nice placements with songs like Summer in the City and Do You Believe in Magic, which was used for a big McDonald's campaign and, and quite a few others. I mean, you're always hearing that song. Do you get personally involved in deciding how your music is used when it comes to advertising? I have a an uh, option to turn down uh, certain types of ads for certain things that I might not go for. Right, right, yeah. Now, that's only through the courtesy of my publishers, mm. by the way. They don't owe me that. Right. I'm, I'm very lucky that, that uh, I do get, uh, you know, I, cool. I usually, for example, I won't, do a hard liquor ad, but I'll do a beer ad. Okay. Uh, you know, and it's all kind of parsing, you know, what you're okay with. Right. And I think one of the things that comes through uh, with you is that you're a guy who still loves music and, and loves the, the fun uh, of music. And I think because of that, um, is one of the reasons that that you connect so well with audiences and that you have been able to um, achieve so many of the accolades that you have that it comes across that you're in this thing because you're you're in love with music and uh, I, I would say as an outside observer that just being inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame which which happened in 2008 and of course being inducted into the into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, these are great recognitions of that. Uh, spirit that you bring to your music. So uh, talk a little bit about what that means for you, both personally and professionally, to to be honored with those kind of inductions and accolades. You know, we, we really didn't mind waiting 15 extra years longer than our English contemporaries <laughs> to get right. these accolades. Uh, but uh, part of the process was that we had people that we felt, well, this guy isn't in yet, <laughs> you know, right, and they're right. getting, they're putting us in, right? you <laughs> right. know, what is that about? Johnny Johnson isn't in the Hall of mm, Fame? Right, Well, right. And, and, and the honor stands. You're a Hall of Fame inductee and a very deserving one, um, and so it's, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I think you guys uh, uh, did your end of this really well. Oh, well, thank you <laughs> so, so much. much. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty and gritty. Been down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk, harder than a match. But now it's a different world. 